I'm a fan of people who refuse to rest on their laurels, their celebrity, or their wealth. People who choose to make things happen. They reimagine and reinvent, and in doing so, they feel their passion and often find a higher purpose. And those are the ones I admire most. The ones that give back. They invest in making the people around them better, their communities, and even our planet a better place. And my guest today is all of that and more. It's Jeannie Becker. She's a dear friend who I've known for many, many years. As FT celebrates its 25th anniversary, one of the designers who's been there from the very beginning is Marc Jacobs. It's like that. I mean, it's not precious. At the end of the day, you take it off and you go to bed, you yeah, know? Yeah, I'm here and this is insane. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be following the pack after Lindsay Lohan. Did you ever in your wildest dream, Lindsay, think you would be, you know, at the creative helm of a house like Angaro? <laughs> no. None other than Sarah Jessica Parker. She came to Toronto recently to launch the Halston Heritage Line. Is it unnerving to be uh, at the creative helm of such a, a legendary label. Oh, and when you put it like that, yes. <laughs> I'm Jeannie Becker. Be here Monday at 9.30 for FTV, fashion television. International TV celebrity, entrepreneur extraordinaire, author, podcast host, advocate for Canadian design, a wonderful mother, and as I said before, so much more. And not only will you learn about her incredible story of rags to riches, I defy you to find someone of any age with more positive energy, including how she's dealing with the latest chapter in her life as she battles breast cancer. Instead of saying quiet, she used her diagnosis and celebrity to remind all of us about the importance of preventative health care. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Jeannie Becker, you've been on Chatter That Matters twice. First, offering your time to help Kathy Chang with her Redwood Classic Apparel. Last year, I asked you if you could provide advice for small business and you said yes, but this is the first time I've had the honor of having you as my absolute guest of honor, so welcome. Well, thank you, Tony. I'm honored to be here. I'm a big fan and uh, I love you to bits, so very interested in having this particular conversation. I've had the honor of escorting you to several events. We were dear friends and without exception, you're always the belle of the ball because you're in this gorgeous designer gown, you're beautiful. But the thing I've always loved is no matter how many times you're stopped, and I've walked a hundred yards and seen you stop a thousand times because people want to touch you, talk about how much you meant, how much you meant to their grandmother and mother. You're always so gracious for your time. Have you always been that way? Because you see a lot of celebrities doing the opposite. They want to maintain their privacy. They want to make themselves so self-important. But you're just like, you're just part of the people. Listen, I've never understood uh, that mode of behavior. What you just mentioned before, how some celebrities just want their privacy and they don't want to be touched. Um, well, how can you expect to touch people and not even want to be touched? In return, I find that so enigmatic that people choose to have a public career platform, yet then they want to put the walls up when uh, when the folks come out. I love people. That's why I got into this business. Um, essentially, it was about communication for me, even wordless communication. You know, I spent time as a mime artist back in the day. Expression. And none of it means anything if you can't uh, get the reaction back. I, I, you know, so it's the biggest joy. And I always said the day that I got sick of people 
recognizing me on the street or, or saying hi or coming up to me was definitely the day that uh, I should retire. And I don't have any plans to retire anytime soon. So you mentioned my artist, which we might get to a little later, because I always love that story of you heading off to France and your mother going, where are you going now? But we'll, we'll get to that. But author and entrepreneur and stuff. But I would say that fashion television is not only where you made your mark in Canada, but worldwide. So I'm curious, how did that show come about? And how did you get cast to be that lead singer, that host? Because that wasn't just a six-month gig. I mean, that was a big defining part of your life. Yeah, that was a 27-year stint. I just kind of screamed and nagged and uh, asked for it again and again and again and again, because this was an idea that was brewing at City TV back in uh, in the mid-'80s. I, at the time was uh, hosting a show called The New Music, and I was on Much Music. I'm happy to say that I was one of the founding people, creators of, of that show, and that, that was going back to 1979. But I was looking for the next big thing because I thought, you know, if I have to interview Rod Stewart once more, I'm going to lose it. I, I really wanted to go beyond, you know, the rock and roll arena. And I had always loved fashion. I mean, I was no fashion expert, but grew up, you know, pouring over the pages of Harper's Bazaar and Vogue magazine. My mom used to make all her own clothes. So I was just a big fashionista from a very young age. I heard rumblings around the TV station. This is in early 1985. A hot young producer at City TV by the name of Jay Levine wanted to create a fashion video show, hoping that uh, these you know, fashion videos would do for the fashion industry what music videos did for the music industry. But there were precious few fashion videos around, and he just really wanted to maybe take the ones that were available, put them on the air, and then truly try to make a sexy show that was all about movement and, uh, and, and sex appeal, because obviously that's where fashion's at. I started to petition for the job because I walked into the lobby of City TV one day and there were about 50 20-year-olds sort of aspiring young models and they wanted to be fashion DJs and they were going to audition for this role to be the host of this fashion television pilot. But I just marched up to the station manager's uh, office and I said, you know what, I've paid my dues here. I'm looking for the next big thing. I love fashion. Let's do with the designers what we've been doing with the rock stars. Let's try to expose the names behind the labels. Let's go into the studios with them, behind the scenes with them. Let's go backstage with them, just as we had been doing with the rock stars. And they were like hemming and hawing. They didn't really want to give me the gig. I don't know, maybe they thought I was a little long in the tooth by that point. But I kind of kicked and screamed and thought, you know, you you owe this to me. I've worked my butt off and you, I know I can do this job. And it, anyway, they finally uh, succumbed and said, okay, okay, you can do it. We'll just, you know, for the pilot, we'll see how it goes. Interestingly enough, for the pilot, they didn't want me to do any interviews with uh, designers. Let's just have it sexy, full of movement. We'll do street fashion. We don't, we'll show some of these videos. We don't really want any talking heads on the show. But after that first pilot, they said, you know what? This show could really work if we really did get to know the designers a little bit better. So maybe for the next show, we will send you to New York so you can interview Bob Mackie and Betsy Johnson. And actually, we did a, a story on the Roots Boys here in Toronto. And the thing just took off like wildfire. And I have looked back a few times. I should say we haven't looked back. But, but we didn't look back for a long time. I mean, wow. 
27 years of doing a show that was syndicated in 130 different countries. And the first show that really looked at fashion as entertainment. This show's about people seeing the positivity and possibility, especially today with such a storm of negativity. You marched into that office. You walked through an army of people that you must have felt all these models vying for it. What gave you the courage not to feel like an imposter and say, this is mine, I deserve it? Because so often we hear that one of the things that help hold women back from achieving such incredible roles is if they don't feel they're ready or deserving, they wait. You did it. You decided this is my time, my turn. Provide some incredible advice because there's a lot of people listening that I know want to go after something and sometimes just feel they're not quite there. Well, there's no question that to a large degree, a lot of this uh, drive uh, and passion uh, and fearlessness and, and tenacity is part of my DNA. I grew up as the child of Holocaust survivors. And the motto that saw my dad and my mom through the war, it was really my dad's motto was, don't be afraid and never give up. That was what I told myself when I was 16 years old, like back in 1968, and went to audition for a, a role in a CBC sitcom. And I had no acting experience whatsoever. But I heard they were doing this open casting call. And I just, you know, boldly went into this casting session. And, you know, all the kids were like child actors, very seasoned. They had done hundreds of shows like Forest Rangers, or they were the stars of the Sears catalog. And, you know, I had no experience except I had done a play at summer camp once. But I don't know. I just had this belief in myself that I could do it. And this incredible passion that this is what I wanted. I was fearless. And sure enough, I got the role. I got this recurring role in the sitcom. It was amazing. Without question, my mom, who was Eastern European, um, and you know, she had a great love of fashion. And then she went out and got a sewing machine and she started making clothes for my sister um, and, and me and, and clothes for herself and clothes for my Mitzi doll, which is the knockoff Barbie, because we couldn't afford the real Barbie. I also used to play with paper dolls a lot. You know, we used to call them cutouts, cutout dolls. That was fun and that was made me realize it. Here was this arena with these glamorous possibilities and these transformational possibilities. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We're chatting with Jeannie Becker. But I want to just talk about your parents' Holocaust survivors and take me back to the early days because so many people that I talk to, their circumstances as a childhood absolutely defines their, their path. Sometimes they come through horrific circumstances and say, I never wanted to be part of that. And other times they just be blessed with great parents. So talk to me about growing up because you and I have talked in the past about that house becoming a slipper factory and, and a modern Airbnb with guests always piling in that you didn't know. And so just take the listener to just those early roots that kind of grew into that DNA of Jeannie Becker? Well, my parents, both their uh, families were, were decimated in the Holocaust. Um, and when they came to Toronto in 1948, penniless immigrants with no no real connections, no real contacts. My mother had a great uncle, you know, um, living in the West End of the city, but uh, he wasn't really able to help them too much. So they really had to start from nothing, but they were determined to rebuild their lives. And this kind of passion for life, the zest for life, this incredible um, determination to rebuild um, and rise from the ashes. That's just where they were coming from. So 
for us, we didn't have a family. They were determined to talk to us, me and my older sister, about all their experiences because they had no one else to tell. I mean, truly, they should have been going through therapy because they were, they had like a crazy kind of survival story where they were on the run the entire time, living in bunkers and, and holes in the ground, basically, for months at a time, just hiding, running from the Nazis. I mean, so much so that I remember as a five-year-old hiding under the bed because I didn't want to hear any more war stories. I realized that these stories that made me who I am and their love of people, of course, as you mentioned, uh, the house that they uh, were living in, that we were all living in, was, was a kind of rooming house. It was a house my father managed to buy, but the only way that he could pay the mortgage was to rent out all the different rooms to various international rumors, we call them, the immigrants that came. Uh, and, and so he would always invite them down into the kitchen and he would pour them a little, you know, shot glass of Crown Royal. And he would say, okay, you know, it was like he was interviewing them. He wanted to know about their personal stories too. And I was there as a little child, you know, watching all this and lapping it up in wide-eyed wonder. You know, of course, that made me want to be a storyteller and want to enable others to tell their stories because I, I saw the way my dad did it. And it was an incredible education, an education in which I realized that everybody has to go through stuff. And everybody has to go through some kind of hell. I mean, that is just the nature of the beast. I, I truly believe that. I don't think anyone escapes from this life unscathed. I mean, it comes to us in, in various ways. And I was determined to lead a large life, unlike my parents, whose lives were really like nipped in the bud in their youth. I mean, they couldn't realize their dreams. They couldn't finish their education. They couldn't become the people that they dreamed they would be. So it was up to me to not only have, you know, a, a good life or a great life, I had to have an ultra fabulous life. And, uh, you know, so far, so good. I think I did it. Parents that have come over and they sacrifice everything. They live vicariously through their children. I have to believe that they're hoping for some sense of certainty and security. You know, my daughter's going to grow up and be a lawyer or an engineer, or she's going she's gonna to have a job that I'm happy to tell all my neighbors about. You're completely the opposite. I mean, you're a bit of a wild girl. I mean, talk about jumping on the stage with Ronnie Hawkins and booging away. And like you were, there's no pattern that said, I lived in a hole. I came to Canada. Therefore, my daughter's going to follow a certain path. You were a rebel without a cause. Uh, no question. Oh, my poor parents now that I think back. And we were especially precious to them because they had nothing else. And they had lived through the war just, just to have us and have this tiny, precious family. My mother took us to the library on a very regular basis and read us these incredible fairy tales. And I believed them. And I believed that if you dreamed large enough, and if you believed in your dreams, they would come true. There was no question that I, you know, was grew up in the 50s as a little child anyway, watching TV, you know, with just absolutely loving that and thought, I want to be a TV star. Every year on my birthday cake, when I blew out the candles, I wished to have my own TV show. That's all I ever wanted. I mean, my parents, of course, show business was, ugh, they didn't want to hear about it. You know, my mother, like, adored Elizabeth Taylor, but she was always saying, but look at how many marriages, you know, she's had. Don't ever get into show business because they never have a happy marriage. It's, ne it's never a happy life. And I've been twice divorced. However, now I'm in a very happy, wonderful relationship. Yes, we're going to get to Prince Ian in, in a little bit. I'm, <laughs> I want to talk about, so your poor parents, as you describe it, you decide you're going to go off to New York City 
And your mom sews money into your panties because that's how her mom sort of protected her wealth. And you go off. I mean, what brought you to New York and how did they even come to terms with it? Because, I mean, they're just finally getting to a world. It must have taken them years before they could just sleep through the night without having a nightmare. And next thing, you've created the next series of nightmares by their poor daughter going off. When I was 16, I started acting professionally. And residual checks were coming in and I was you know, going to high school, but I was making a lot of money on the side, you know, well, relatively speaking, a lot for the time. So I think that proved to my mother that, you know, well, maybe I could have a career in show business. Obviously, I was so passionate about it. And she sent me to drama school when I was 12 years old. And, and I really had wanted to go to the National Theatre School. Um, after high school, I auditioned for that, but I didn't get in. But they said to me, you know, you'll just never make it as a Shakespearean actress, but we could see you doing Broadway or off-Broadway. You should go to a school called the uh, Herbert Berghoff Studio in New York. It's in the West Village, a fabulous place. Um, and that's a really cool place because a lot of professional actors teach there, you know, when they're not, you know, involved in doing stuff on Broadway. So I worked all summer long uh, at a flower shop and, you know, made the money and I sat on a Greyhound bus and I went to New York City, not knowing anyone there, how I was going to get by. How did my parents let me go like that? Again, another incredible lesson that my parents taught me that, you know, you give your kids a strong foundation and then you just have to let them go and let them fly and and have faith that they will soar. Uh, I can't imagine how terrifying it was for them. It's like the way I'm terrified or was terrified when my daughter first decided to move to the Yukon and live in an off-grid cabin and she's been there for nine years. But you just have to, you have to have faith in your kids that they'll figure it out. And somehow they let me do it. We're so proud of me as I started to succeed along my career path. They were like my biggest PR agent. So I'm so happy that I, I brought them that uh, sense of pride and satisfaction. So New York, you do the New York gig and that'll be your passion, but you go off to Paris to study to be a mime artist. Now, how did you sell that at home? Because I have to believe that, you know, they'd start questioning just if, was were you on like? <laughs> well, you know, I think my parents just had respect for me. Um, and for my wishes and dreams. And that's something that I wish I saw more of sometimes with parents and kids, because I don't think parents often give kids their due respect and they don't nurture their wishes and dreams the way I think maybe they ought to. I don't think my mother was very happy when I said I was going to go to Paris, but I think she understood why I wanted to go and why it was important to go. Um, and my dad, I remember, gave me his... Uh, Visa card, uh, charge X, they called it at the time, to only to be used in case of emergencies, of course. And, you know, and these were the days, you know, I had to go to the American Express office um, to, to make a phone call to talk to them, you know, once a week, if, if that even. I mean, it wasn't like, you couldn't like FaceTime your kid across the miles the way you can today, obviously. You couldn't keep in constant touch with them. I mean, this was even before fax machines. So it, it was uh, disconcerting for them, I am sure. And thinking about that gives me so much strength um, to do deal with what I have to sometimes deal with with my own kids, giving them the ball and letting them run with it in terms of just letting them go, um, in, in terms of just having the faith that somehow they will get through it and they will survive. But, you know, as parents, we're all just sort of 
natural born worry warts, I think. Of course, I worry, but uh, thinking about my parents, you know, every day of my life, uh, and many times a day, uh, has given me incredible strength to deal with all kinds of situations. And, uh, you know, me going off to study mime, I mean, I, I think, you know, they thought it was crazy, but they also thought it was cool. And, uh, and it sure was. Coming up, Jeannie Becker and I discuss what it was like for her in the 90s as a TV personality, but one inside a sector often considered toxic. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. $500 billion in sustainable financing to combat climate change. $500 million for Future Launch, a 10-year program to prepare youth for the jobs of tomorrow. Helping to discover the next generation of Olympians. Artists monetizing their talents, women entrepreneurs pursuing their dreams, supporting mental health, and so much more. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. There's no question that one of the craziest moments in FT's 25-year history happened in a Toronto hotel room with the police's Andy Summers in 2008. When I first interviewed the guitarist back in 1979, he insisted on doing the interview in a bathtub. Just hope you don't start to shrivel up. You know, no it'll chance. be bad for the guitar playing. <laughs> no chance of shriveling with you around, dude. <laughs> oh, Andy, you're so wicked. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I defy you to find someone of any age with more positive energy. Welcome back. We're chatting with Jeannie Becker. I want to now to go back and talk about strength because City TV, the Moses Limer, who was the founder and like a lot of creative geniuses, there's a lot of people that remember that. And as other people say, it was one of the most toxic cultures for people to work. And you found your way through that at an era and a time when women whispered they didn't roar. You seem to overpower that and overcome that. How did you go about doing it? Because in those days, society wasn't necessarily on your side. Um, those years with Moses were profoundly um, important and inspiring and educational for me. Moses uh, was tough on me, really tough. He knows uh, how to push people's buttons and get what he wants uh, out of a situation. And boy, uh, yeah, we butted heads a lot. Uh, he was... <laughs> He was pretty ruthless. I mean, you know, I remember being um, eight and a half months pregnant, sitting there feeling like a beached whale in the makeup room about to, you know, do yet another episode of fashion television. And he came into the makeup room. He goes, so you're having a baby. I, yeah. Well, when do you think you're going to come back to work? Because, you know, there's a lineup of 20 year old girls outside my office door just chomping at the bit waiting for your job. And Tony, these were the days before this idea of, you know, you could take mat leave for a year and they have to keep your job for you. In those days, it was maybe three months and they they didn't um, have to keep your job for you. They had to maybe give you a job and it wasn't the job, you know, that you had. And uh, I thought, Moses, don't you worry about it. Now, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And sure enough, I was back in a couple of weeks. And the same thing two and a half years later when I had my second baby. I don't know. Was I proud of that? Or am I ashamed of that? Or is that, was that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? I don't know. But I do know that it's what I had to do under the circumstances. My work was just really important to me. It was an important 
part of who I was and what I, I stood for and what I believed in. And I was just determined to hang on to it all and do it all and have it all. You know, and I guess you'd have to ask my kids how it was for them. You know, I don't know. Did they suffer? I, I tried to be there for them like every single weekend, no matter what, no matter where on the planet I was. I would made sure that I would be back in Toronto for the weekends. My ex-husband and the two girls and I, you know, loaded our two cats and our turtle in the car and we went to our little cottage in Muskoka and it was not about having guests and it wasn't about entertaining people at the cottage. It was just about the four of us really, really being together. And I think the kids appreciated that. And they saw how much I loved my work. And as they got older, you know, sometimes I said to them if they were crying before I was leaving for a trip the next day, you know, oh, mom, we did you have to go to Paris again? We don't want you to go. And I said, I remember one night I said to them, you know what, guys, if you really don't want me to go, I'm going to quit my job. And I really felt I would at that moment. I'm going to stay home with you. Okay, just screw it. I'm going to. And then Becky, the older one with her, oh, mommy, no, 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 your job's so great. We know you love your job. You don't, don't quit, don't quit, don't worry. We'll be okay, we'll be okay. Such a beautiful love affair between you and your daughters. I mean, that is transcendent over time and it's just fantastic on it. So uh, give us a sense of how do you balance this? I use the word addiction because so often it's, it's such a horrible word, but when I talk about people that are so passionate about their careers, they're so excited about it, they're so energized. How do you find a way to compartmentalize that? Because I find that people that are really have put a dent in the universe, have really mattered it's a tough thing to do. There's no such thing as balance. It's really, you should have been a juggler because it's throwing a lot of balls in the air. I don't know if you can have it all, all at once, but I do believe that you can have it all and you can have it all in bits and pieces. Yeah. Did I cry myself to sleep in hotel rooms all over the world for years because I couldn't be with my kids? Absolutely. As every working mom who has to travel can attest to. Of course, at the end of the day, your kids, your family, the most important thing. But I knew I would not be a happy person if I was just going to devote my life totally, solely to my kids and have nothing else. And the fact that I did stay true to my job, my career, my my work life has afforded my kids certain opportunities too now. It's, it's enabled me to help them live out their dreams. So talk to me about your first marriage, obviously you've been divorced twice. Your first marriage doesn't last. Was there ever a sense of you're succeeding and they're not? You know, you're building something special. You're becoming an international star. There's very few at that time you could say Canadians were as big as you are around the world in terms of saying that's Jeannie Becker. And how did you come to terms with relationships where one's succeeding and one's not? Was that a problem? Yeah, that was a problem. Even with the, with my first marriage, um, you know, and married to a, a lovely guy, still love him, still love my second husband, still love, you know, all these, these incredible people that I've had these meaningful relationships with. I mean, you know, a, a certain kind of love never wanes. But with my first husband, uh, he was going to follow an academic route. And I was all of a sudden, you know, working for 1050 Chum, go running around with cool rock stars and DJs and stuff. And I think that maybe made him feel a little secure, as brilliant as he was. So that's why we broke up. We kind of grew apart. And he went out, and he's wildly successful now as, as an academic. And with my second husband, too. I mean, my we broke up right around the time that, uh, you know, he got axed from his gig, you know, and he was in the media and he was like a 
a big radio guy, very successful too. And all of a sudden, I started, you know, making more money and my career was, you know, on the rise and his wasn't. And, and I think that's incredibly tough for a guy. I think it'd be tough for a woman too, but that's tough. Let's talk about two people that you adore so much. Let's start with your youngest daughter, Joy. So she doesn't head to New York or to chase her dreams or to Paris. She goes to Dawson City, Yukon School of Visual Design, and she decides to stay there, as you said, in an off-grid cabin to write songs and work on her musical career. And it wasn't just a, a whim of a thing, her fairy tale. She's still out there. I love it. You said when I went to visit her, nobody knew who Jeannie Becker was for the first time. Oh, you're Joey's mom. We love Joey. What a delight. Uh, yeah, Joey's, uh, both my girls, always from the get-go, determined to make it on their own steam. I help give them a strong sense of themselves, which is absolutely mandatory. The stupidest thing that people say are like, oh, so are your kids following your footsteps? I would hope not. Why would anyone want to be a follower? I mean, I didn't want to follow in anyone's footsteps. I wanted to, you know, lead the way and, and be a trailblazer. And that's what my girls, have, you know, both decided to do. And Joey, I think maybe had to go that far away to feel that she wasn't maybe constantly living, you know, in my shadow. It sounds creepy to say it. I, I hope she never really did feel that way. But, you know, even as little kids, we'd be walking along Bloor Street and people would be stopping me, to, you know, to take a picture for, you know, an autograph or just say hi. I think they appreciated um, seeing me be kind and, you know, gracious with people. But uh, they were determined to uh, to live life on their own terms. And, and, you know, they haven't used really, you know, my connections or, or anything to make it um, in any way, shape or form. You know, Joey is a musician. Uh, Becky is a filmmaker, animator, um, and farmer, because she has taken over the family farm, a farm that I bought in 2000, shortly after my marriage broke up. I wanted, I bought a 123-acre farm, about an hour and a half uh, east of Toronto. Were you a fan of green acres or something at the time? I mean, that's... <laughs> what was I thinking? That's a, that's a far stretch from a little place in Muskoka to 122 acres. So it's... Uh, <laughs> I think there's a little bit of impulsiveness. I want you to tell, share the story. I know how close your mom was to you. And 94, the last Passover together, and obviously your her grandkids aren't there. What happens and oh, what did that mean? I just, you know, I closed my eyes and I just see her sitting at the head of the table. And she was still, you know, she had Parkinson's at, at, at the time, you know, and, and she was, you know, pretty feeble because that was in April. That was in April. She died a month later. In 2015, but Joey was living uh, in the Yukon, and she couldn't come home for the Seder, you know, the Passover dinner. <laughs> we FaceTimed her in. It was pretty magical because my mother was like watching the computer screen, and you know, Joey was you know sitting there trying to you know have her <laughs> makeshift little Passover dinner as we you know ate our matzo ball soup. But she just kept looking at Joey and asking if Joey was happy. That's all my mom cared about in her final years. And that to me too was such a great lesson is are your kids happy? That's all that matters. I thought, mom, why aren't you asking Joey when she's coming home? Why aren't you trying to get Joey to come back? Make her feel a little guilty. You know, lay on that Jewish guilt out. She's got to come home and see you. But no, well, my mom was very at peace with the way she saw her kids uh, 
living their lives. Except for me, of course. She wasn't at peace with the fact that I still didn't have a boyfriend or husband. (laughs) She wasn't happy about that. So talk about this dashing Prince Ian. I have only because of COVID have yet to meet him. Every time I see pictures of you and they're not stage pictures, it just seems to be this incredible love affair. Two people set in their ways, both very successful. How did you find a way at this stage in your life to really make something like this work? I mean, was it the kid that used to go and be read fairy tales from the library? Another fairy tale came through? No, I don't think, no, Ian's much more of a cynic than that. You know, I think, you know, he he appreciates a good fairy tale, but I don't think he believes in them as wholeheartedly as I do. He's much more uh, pragmatic uh, than that and comes at things from a different way. Although he has a huge appreciation for art and actually that's where I met him at the McMichael Art Gallery um, that was very serendipitous and it was two weeks after my mom passed there is no doubt in my mind that my mom sent him to me because I did not want to go to this you know moonlight gala you know this they have this wonderful fundraiser at the McMichael every year but the year that my mom died I didn't want to put a little black dress on two weeks later and dateless go to this you know fancy affair at an art gallery but my best friend, Penny, who I've been friends with since I was 11, said to me, come on, you know, that you know, Michael Gallery was your mom's favorite place. We've got, you know, let's get dressed up, rent a limo and we'll go out there. So I went, OK, OK. And we got there. The minute I got there, she took off and I'm sitting there in a corner by myself, you know, sobbing into my martini practically. And then this really cute guy was like checking me out from across the room. I, he made a beeline towards me and he said the sexiest thing ever. Hi, my name's Ian McGinnis, and I'm on the foundation board of the McMichael Gallery. And I want to congratulate you on always having kept yourself so relevant. Now, what woman doesn't want to hear that? I mean, for, for me anyway, and women of a certain age particularly. You know, we just want to be relevant, for God's sake. And here's this guy, appreciate, and I thought, this is a guy that gets it. He gets me. He's going to get the fact that I dance as fast as I can, that, I, that I'm that i in love with, you know, the work that I do, and, and I want to keep on doing it. Anyway, that night, he asked me to go to Scotland with him, because he's from Scotland. A few weeks later, we went to Scotland together, and... The romance just uh, hasn't ceased. It's, it's just been an incredible, incredible uh, time with Ian and very blessed that I found him and no question that my mom sent him to me. It, it's always human nature, I think, maybe to expect the worst, or at least my, my late great mother always said to me, you know, expect the worst and you'll never be disappointed as a way of trying to protect me. So I, of course, went to the worst possible place, however, in order to survive, and you know this, or I knew this at the back of my mind, I had to really start looking at this not as some kind of, you know, test, but finally this was a chance to really prove to myself that I was everything that I always told myself I was, that I was fearless. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We're chatting with Jeannie Becker. So I want to talk about your breast cancer. You've been very public about it. You've used your celebrity to raise awareness. Talk to me about how this diagnosis came about and why did you choose to go public with it? Because that could impact your career. That could impact people's perceptions of you, but you didn't really care. You said this is an opportunity to make a difference yet once again. Okay. Before I answer that, I want to ask you, in what way do you think 
it could impact my career, people's perceptions of me. They might say that you're sick or that you're, a lot of people were tired. A lot of people hide mental illness. A lot of people hide how they're feeling because they need this persona, society's persona of what, you know, a celebrity should be or a business leader should be. And I've done a lot of work in the mental health area. And that's one of the things that people always try to go, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Why do we even have to say that? This is the great illusion that we're all under, that we all think we're so invincible. And I'm telling you, even for me, there I was, I had just turned 70 which was a big deal for me because like, ah, oh, 70. I thought, you know what? I'm going to write my next book about being 70 and being powerful because I think there's something to be said about aging with power and I've never been more confident and I've never been smarter and more experienced and um, I'm invincible. This is just great. Uh, this is the best time of my life. And then a few weeks later, I went for a routine mammogram as I go Every two years, that's what they told me after the age of 40-something. They said, okay, you only need to go every two years. So I, there I went. And a few days later, I get a call that, oh, we found something. We thought they called it a mat. We found this mass. So a few days later, I went in for a biopsy and an ultrasound. And then, then I went back for an MRI. And that's the, those days are the scary, dark days because you don't know what are they going to find and what's inside me and what's happening to me. And you start thinking about the end of your life. You kind of start planning your own funeral. That was a really scary thing until I met the good doctors at Princess Margaret Hospital, which is the most amazing place. And these doctors are such rock stars. And they said to me, we caught it early. It's not only treatable, but it's curable. Um, and there's so many miraculous drugs now. And there's so many wonderful ways of getting through this now that did not exist, even like even five years ago, the landscape has changed so dramatically. I started then thinking I owe it to everybody out there who has supported me for so long to let them know. I mean, I've all my life's always been an open book. I mean, I have to let them know a where I'm at because I want to be authentic and in everything I do going forward. How can I keep this a big dark secret? Besides. The fact that I have a platform, I can raise awareness, like that is such a privilege. That is such a blessing to remind women not to be afraid to go for a mammogram because a lot of women are because they're afraid of what they'll find. Breast cancer, for the most part, if diagnosed early, is not only treatable, but it's curable. The survivors, the thrivers that I've heard from have just filled me too, with so much hope. So how did Joey and Becky, because you've always been the superwoman, you're the one that said, don't quit, mom, because you love what you do. How do they react when this woman that's always had these superpowers suddenly got this diagnosis? I just said, you know, guys, I have something to tell you, and I don't want you to get worried or scared because I'm going to be okay and I'm going to get through it, but I have breast cancer. I mean, that's another thing that I like to try and do, help normalize the conversation surrounding cancer a little bit because it's not always a death sentence. It doesn't have to be the scariest thing in the world. And once you're not afraid of cancer, you're you can be fearless about just about anything. The kids were so supportive. Ian, my partner, 
he has a daughter, Julie. He has three gorgeous daughters, and and one of them, Julie, is a three time cancer survivor. Which one of the daughters wrapped of his daughters wrapped you up twelve presents for the twelve stages of chemotherapy? I'm not. How romantic is that? <laughs> That's got to be one of the most important things when you're bringing families together. I mean, the TV created the Brady Bunch like this perfectly paved speedway, but when you're bringing together families, I think it's lovely when someone comes in and says, you're so important to my dad or my mom, therefore you're very important to me. And I think that's one of the great gifts when children have that ability to do that at any age, because it means so much to the people that want to have that relationship work. Especially, uh, you know, for someone like me, who all we ever wanted was family. Like we wanted family so much growing up to think, oh, the family's expanded because now I'm with a partner that has his own family and we can blend these families. No, it, it's been great. Well, I, I feel for Ian, five women and Ian, that's uh, that's that's got to be a lot to counter, especially people as determined as you are. My final question, you know, mime artist, rebel, broadcaster, jumping on stage at age 16, entrepreneur, authors of so many wonderful books, a keynote speaker, all the honors you've received, it, besides your daughters and Ian, which is stating the obvious, is there anything that stands out the most that you said, you know, when they talk about Jeannie Becker 50 years from now, what do you hope they say? Boy, Tony, I don't know. You know, that that's a big kind of question. And a, it's a, it's a kind of question I think you tend to ask people towards the end of their lives, isn't it? You know, when they feel that they've given it their all. And, you know, on, on some levels, I feel like maybe I've only started to scratch the surface of what I can really do. Uh, for people. I think you just said it. I think that they'll remember that you're always scratching the surface of something new. You know, I always end my shows with the three things that I take away. And it's, it's so hard for me to be objective because I know you so well. But the first thing is your heart. It beats so strong. I think it's the heart that beats so strong when your parents are hiding in holes and spending such an important part of their life just racing to stay alive. They must be so proud looking down and seeing that that radiates through you in the sense of just scratching through the surface. The second thing, which I think is important for all parents, especially nowadays, we want to do everything for our kids is, you, you know, your job, as you said, was to create a foundation, but it's their job to build upon it. And you just got to step away and let them succeed and fail and figure things out. And I know it's hard as a parent. The final thing is just this superpower of yours, you know, aiming high, aging with power. You have such an incredible appetite for life and such positive energy. I am so delighted that you found the time to join me on Chatter That Matters because you know I'm not only a friend, I'm a fan and uh, and you're someone that inspires me. Wow, thanks, Tony. Uh, I'm humbled by all your kind words. Last night, I watched a documentary titled Cher in the Spotlight. It was a wonderful film that captured how Cher overcame crippling stage fright in her youth to own the stage and silver screen for her entire career. At the beginning, it was Sonny and Cher, and they were massive in their day. But as the act fell out of favor, they went from selling out stadiums and being headliners on TV shows to playing two acts every night at a nightclub. Even during those times, and in fact throughout her entire life, Cher never quit or relied on her back library to stay current. Cher won an Academy Award and a Golden Globe, had one of the highest grossing tours of all time. She sold over 100 million records as a solo artist and another 40 million with Sonny. So was it her resilience and immense talent or luck and good fortune? Well, most likely all of the above, but what Cher attributes most of her success to is never accepting the word no. 
and Cher reminds me of Jeannie Becker. Each has reinvented themselves repeatedly and both remain current and loved into their 70s. This is what I love about Chatter That Matters and a big shout out to RBC for making all of this possible, for letting me create within my labor of love. See, together we counter the storm of negativity and a growing sense of impossibility through positivity by sharing true stories of people that create possibilities. So Jeannie Becker, thank you for sharing your story in Chatter That Matters, a story that began with your parents who survived the Holocaust, who came to Canada and worked tirelessly to create a foundation for you, but at the same time let you boldly go where you wanted to go. A story of a woman in entertainment who kept reaching for rungs in the ladder and has climbed ever since. A story of a single mother who invested so much in her children and today using your celebrity to raise awareness about breast cancer. Like Cher, you refuse to accept the word no. And like Cher, you've brought so many smiles to so many people over many years. Jeannie Becker, you're simply one of the best. Yeah, let's just keep on going, both of us. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.